All right. Well, we're again blessed to have uh, Hank Hanegraaff, uh, host of the Bible Answer Man broadcast. We have a number of questions that have been submitted here, and I uh, have tried to uh, categorize some of them so that they will be able to be answered together. The first one is regarding politics. I hear some Christians say there is only one choice in this presidential election. Obama is a Christian and Mitt Romney is not. So, should we have to vote for the Christian? How would you respond? A second question is, will you vote for Obama or Romney? (laughs) Well, there's no question whatsoever that Mitt Romney is uh, involved in a, uh, a cult from a theological perspective. Mormonism is a, uh, a, a non-Christian cult. Uh, they compromise, confuse, and outright contradict essential Christian doctrine. Um, uh, Jesus Christ uh, is the spirit brother of Lucifer in Mormonism. In Mormonism, there are three heavens, a celestial, a terrestrial, and a celestial heaven. And if you are a, uh, a temple Mormon, as Mitt Romney is, you can get to the third level of the celestial heaven and rule your own planet as God because as God once was God once was a man we are now and as God is now in Mormonism we can become Um, Mormonism is a a works oriented cult Um, and it is a uh, a, a cult that compromises virtually all the essentials. Uh, if you don't know how to scale the language barrier, it is not necessarily self-evident, but there's no question whatsoever. And I think I have some flip charts here uh, called the Maze of Mormonism. By the way, Mitt Romney believes and said when he ran for president in 1908 that Jesus Christ is going to come back and reign from Independence, Missouri. Um, uh, so there, that's where the new temple is going to be built, by the way. Um, but but uh, the point is that this is clearly uh, uh, not Christian. Uh, although many Mormons today make an attempt to try to harmonize their belief system, at least from a public standpoint, with what we believe as, as Orthodox believers. So, uh, to make it very clear, I don't consider uh, Mitt Romney to be involved in, a, uh, a, uh, in Christianity. I, I don't consider him a Christian, and this is not judging him by any standard other than the, own, the, the standard that he himself has set. But by the same token, I would not consider uh, Barack Obama to be an evangelical born-again believer. And again, that is not my judgment. It is simply my recognition of what he has said. Uh, If indeed, uh, as I said the other night, the Bible teaches slavery, uh, the Bible has no moral imperative for any one of us. Uh, In fact, uh, when he says the Bible teaches slavery, he's dead wrong. Uh, Paul in, in, in Timothy puts... Slave traders in the same category as murderers, adulterers, perverts, and liars. Uh, hardly good company. Uh, so the 
the notion that we have a Christian on the one hand and a cultist on the other, I don't think is correct either. Uh, the next point that I think is salient in this regard uh, would be that the, the issue now becomes the greater good principle. Of the choices we have, we have to make a choice. And therefore, we have to diligently take into consideration all the converging factors that we have access to. So we should not be careless voters. We should be careful voters. Many people say, well, this is just politics and you can't legislate morality, so let's not even be involved in the political process. That's wrong as well. If you can't legislate morality Pray tell, what can you legislate? Of course you can legislate morality. It's not a matter of whether you can legislate morality. It's a matter of whose morality you're going to legislate. So we should be involved in every sphere of life. Education, politics, the arts. Every sphere of life belongs to God. There's not an inch of this world that God does not say that belongs to me. We as Christians must be engaged in every sphere of life. But let me say that though I think it is a very important election and we should be counted and we should make proper decisions, not decisions that I pontificate to you, uh, but decisions that you make carefully, prayerfully, if you're married with your spouse, uh, within the body of believers, carefully, uh, 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 very significant decisions um, while we should do that we should also recognize that ultimately the transformation of the West will not come as a result of a politician the transformation of the West will come as a result of changing hearts when hearts are changed behavior changes so the only way we ultimately will, will be the dunamis that, that makes dramatic change in the West is by once again engaging those foundational principles that we've abdicated. And that is to be salt and light, a city on a hill, not hiding our light under a bushel, but, but making our light apparent to the world, uh, not dodging. Uh, not being scared, not saying, oh my goodness, if I talk about same-sex sexuality on the radio, well, I'm going to be considered to have communicated hate speech, I'm going to lose my livelihood, and oh my goodness, I have 12 children to take care of. And, and uh, I have faced those battles over and over again in my life. I've had very significant prosperity conglomerates come to me and say, uh, many years ago, you're charismatic, you're a good speaker, we can make you a star. Uh, and, and, and about that directly, uh, just kind of lay off this stuff. So we constantly have to make decisions. Are we going to be salt and light? Or are we living for temporary pleasures? The decision we make every day of our lives is a decision we have to ratify, I should say, at least every day of our lives. But the point here is that ultimately we must engage again in the disciplines of soul winning. That sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it? 
And I'm not saying that you have to run around frantically grabbing people by the lapels saying, Brother, are you saved? I don't even think that the issue is evangelism. Quite frankly, I think the issue is equipping for evangelism. If we are equipped believers, trust me, God will give you opportunities. The fields are white and to harvest. The labors are few. We need to equip ourselves to always be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within us, with gentleness and with respect. That's how you change a culture. But in the meantime, we have to be faithful in terms of the responsibilities and opportunities we have in yet a free or a semi-free society. So you will vote for? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's okay. Um, Can anybody guess? (laughs) Another question regarding Mormonism is, how do Mormons explain, quote-unquote, their truths in the Book of Mormon when there there is no historical or archaeological evidence? What can you say to them about this and point them to the truths in the Bible? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, a well-phrased question. And the answer to that question is simply this, that, that Mormons resort uh, to a fallback position. And that is what is called a burning in the bosom. And in essence... What it means is you read the Book of Mormon and then you have a feeling about it. A feeling that this is true. This is very, very different from the Christian ethic where we're called to test all things and hold fast to the good. Uh, So, for example, we don't accept the Bible, as I said earlier, on blind faith, but rather as a result of faith an irrefutable fact. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent world. In in the Book of Mormon, uh, I have pointed out to many Mormons over the years that the Book of Mormon has been utterly repudiated by both anthropology and archaeology. There's no evidence whatsoever that the... um, the Jaredites, the Lephites, and the, uh, the, and the Lamanites, uh, the Jaredites, the uh, Nephites, and the Lamanites uh, came from Israel to Mesoamerica, or in, in the first case from the Tower of Babel uh, 2,200 years before Christ, and then uh, from the Babylonian exile to Mesoamerica. Anthropology has utterly repeated that. Repudiated that. In fact, we have a DVD that we carry at the Christian Research Institute that lays all of this out. Uh, it gives you all the evidence. Uh, furthermore, the people, places, and particulars that are chronicled in the Book of Mormon do not correspond to reality. They have much more to do with the fertile imagination of Joseph Smith than they do with reality. Um, uh, you know, for example, uh, the land of Moron in Ether 7. Uh, north of the Great Sea of Desolation is is simply mythological. No evidence for it whatsoever. So archaeology and anthropology have not been the friend of the Book of Mormon. So the fallback position has been the burning in the bosom, the feeling uh, that this is true. Now this is a very uh, instructive point for all of us as believers. Uh, Feelings dear brothers and sisters, are notoriously unreliable. 
Let me repeat that. Feelings are notoriously unreliable. Uh, that's why we, we test the feelings, the subjective feelings, in light of an objective court of arbitration, which in the Christian worldview is the Word of God. In relation to cults, would you say that a religion that, number one, adds writings to the canon of Scripture and puts them at the same level of Scripture, two, gives a religious leader's speech the same standing as Scripture, three, encourages praying to dead people, and four, believes that you need to do practices to keep a good standing with God, etc., is a cult? If so, do you think that Catholicism fits that description? As I said earlier, I don't think that Catholicism does. I don't negate the points that have been made uh, in in the prologue to the question. Um, But Roman Catholicism is a world religion. Um, If I say that Islam is not a cult, I'm correctly stating the facts. Islam is not a cult. Uh, Islam is a world religion. Now, does that mean that Islam is true? No. Islam is categorically untrue. But Roman Catholicism as a world religion uh, has a completely different ethic than Islam does and therefore has to be judged based on its merits. Do I think that uh, we should pray to the dead? No. I, uh, I hope the dead are praying for us. Um, uh, but, but, but no, we shouldn't pray to the dead. Uh, we shouldn't pray to Mary. Uh, we should go directly into the throne room of grace because we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, and therefore we can go to the Father and say, Abba, Father, we can pray precisely as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Um, so, do I think that uh, that the Apocrypha should be placed on the same level as the canon? Absolutely not. I do not. Uh, do I think that the Apocrypha is helpful historically? Absolutely, I do. Uh, but quite frankly, again, I think that we need to be charitable in all of these things. Not in terms of compromise, but I do think in terms of charity. Uh, we can criticize Roman Catholics for having an Apocrypha, but quite frankly, most Protestants couldn't name the Apocrypha. Couldn't tell you what's in First and Second Maccabees. Uh, couldn't tell you what is in the book of Philippians. Uh, So I think we need to have a great deal of humility and charity. We need to reach rather than repel. And we need to recognize that within Roman Catholicism, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. I know firsthand brothers and sisters in Christ within Roman Catholicism. And also, we should charitably recognize that within Protestantism, we have Episcopalians, we have Presbyterians, we have all manner of denominations that have abdicated many of the things that Roman Catholicism still stands for. 
liberal Protestant denominations have given up all things that relate to the supernatural uh, and now have embraced naturalistic explanations and have wholly jumped on the bandwagon of philosophical naturalism. So we have problems within uh, Protestantism as well. So I think that the broad brushing isn't particularly helpful. Is it a cult? No. Is it a world religion? Yes. Does it adhere to sub-biblical viewpoints in my it, from, from my perspective, absolutely. Uh, and I have had no temerity whatsoever, uh, I, excuse me, no uh, timidity whatsoever uh, uh, talking about this uh, publicly on the radio. So I, I, I do so with gentleness and with respect. But if someone asks me about purgatory, if someone asks me about the Apocrypha, or whatever question it might be, even Roman Catholic soteriology, Again, however, I think that it's important if we're going to reach rather than repel to really understand Roman Catholic soteriology and not characterize it or mischaracterize it as a astronomy. How upset do we get when uh, a Muslim tells us that we believe in three gods? So of course I don't believe in three gods. I only believe, yeah, you, you believe in three gods. They're character, caricaturing what we believe. Uh, we, we, we find that offensive, and, and it doesn't help the conversation. Well, we need to be careful in how we communicate with those that are in Roman Catholicism. And I would submit to all of you here that in my experience, the vast majority of Roman Catholics that I've encountered believe in a crass system of works righteousness and therefore need the gospel. Uh, we can't forget that, uh, but we also need to recognize that the same thing is true within the vast majority of Protestant denominations today. Hopefully that's helpful. How could Solomon possibly be the wisest man who ever lived if he lived so foolishly by chasing women and false gods? Yeah, that is a... Uh, that's a sobering question. Uh, now, remember when you have um, a thousand uh, uh, between wives and concubines, uh, it, it isn't for relationship. And there's just too many people to have any kind of meaningful relationship. Uh, no one man can do all that. And, 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 and so you recognize immediately that uh, Solomon multiplied horses and wives. Uh, for a reason, uh, in direct conflict to Deuteronomy 17:17, which tells the the king, "Do not multiply horses or wives." He did that because he was trusting in the arm of flesh rather than the arm of God. That is the great sin. The the concubines and wives were more for political alliances, strategic military alliances, than they were for intimacy or pleasure or relationship. Um, and uh, yes, it is an egregious evil, and it was an evil that led to his own demise. Because at the end, what happened? Not only did he have military alliances with foreign governments, but the wives turned his eyes, as did the concubines, from the Lord his God. And he started building altars in high places in Jerusalem. And what happened? As a result of that, the kingdom that he had been given. And Israel reached its zenith under the Solomonic kingdom. That kingdom was torn 
in two. The rending of a kingdom, a kingdom that was called to be light to the nations, to be separate from the nations, to be a testimony to the nations, became a prostitute. I was reading this afternoon in my room uh, back through Jeremiah, and it is the most colorful, graphic language imaginable. I was actually thinking when I was reading through uh, Jeremiah, I couldn't read this to one of my kids. Uh, how Israel called to be a light became a prostitute. The language, again, is graphic, but the reality is even more graphic because God had said, if you follow the detestable ways of the pagan nations that were in the land before you, the land will vomit you out just as it did them. And so you have the Assyrians, the acts of God's judgment who come in and decimate ten tribes. And even after that, Jeremiah is prophesying to a people, if you don't repent, the same thing is going to happen to you. And yet, they did not repent. And so God used the Babylonians as the acts of his judgment respecting the southern kingdom. And we think, uh, when we think about Jeremiah, we think that's ancient history. Boy, I read through Jeremiah and I see the exact same thing happen today. The very things that Jesus spoke out against, the very things that Jeremiah spoke out against, false security, false prophets, false gods. That very thing is being recapitulated in our epoch of time. People telling Christians what their itching ears want to hear. And so they turn aside from truth and turn to myths and fables. We talked about that tonight. Two questions somewhat similar. One says, historically in the U.S., the Civil War era divided denominations for roughly 100 years. Is the current issue on homosexual ordination and or marriage an essential that should divide congregations or should churches strive to stand together in this conflict? A similar question is related to what are the consequences, social ills you talked about if same-sex marriages are allowed? Yeah, here, uh, first of all, the last part of the questions, I mean, it's the utter decimation of a culture. The family unit is the building block of society. It is utterly devastating. There's an article in the Christian Research Journal, the current issue of the Christian Research Journal, that lays this out in very precise and graphic terms. It's written by Jay Richards. It's, I mean, if you, if, if, if you can't subscribe to the journal, you know, get me to send you a mimeographed copy or whatever. It is worth reading. Uh, it, 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 it lays out succinctly, sequentially, graphically the consequences of this issue. But to the first part of the question, uh, 
the issue is essential. And I'll tell you why it's essential. There is no question whatsoever that the Bible is clear, precise, graphic in terms of speaking out with respect to same-sex sexuality. Uh, This is not language that's hard to understand. Read Romans chapter 1. It it is clear. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Read Leviticus. Same-sex sexuality is an abomination to God. There's no question whatsoever. So here's the issue. The issue is now saying the Bible is outdated. We know better. That's what's at stake. What's at stake is, is the Bible your authority or are we now going to determine truth based on public sentiment? And what the church has done is it has caved in with respect to public sentiment. And the truth of the matter is simply this. God does not pull some kind of a cruel joke on people where he creates them biologically in one way and metaphysically in another way. God is not a prankster. He's not cruel. He's not capricious. Indeed, the reason God places borders and boundaries around our lives is not because God is a cosmic killjoy. It is because he wants our joy to be complete. So the issue in churches today revolve around, is this our authority or is this no longer our authority? So at the heart of this issue is whether or not we can trust the word of God, whether this is God's word or whether these are just the ruminations of men. And we are coming perilously close to the time in which the Bible itself will be considered hate speech because of its clear, precise, concise declarations with respect to same-sex sexuality. And the truth of the matter is, as small as the homosexual lobby is, they are doing for a lie what most Christians are not willing to do for the truth. Now this in no way suggests that we shun homosexuals. No, we should engage them. We should go to dinner with them. And we should rejoice when a lost son or daughter of Adam returns to the king. So it is not about a we-they-siege mentality against the world. But it is a recognition that you are homophobic in the truest sense of the word if you do not explain that the body was not made for same-sex sexuality. It is deflective not only physiologically, but also psychologically and certainly spiritually. Uh, In this regard, if you want the best person, in my estimation, on the planet today, if if you ever read anything in this regard, uh, the best person who, who came out of a homosexual lifestyle himself, Joe Dallas, 
beyond a doubt, he is the most compassionate, correct, biblically sound writer on this particular subject. Uh, and, and, and if you go to equip.org, we have a lot of his resources. I have him on the radio broadcast frequently. He is uh, someone that I have the highest regard for and probably is the most credible Christian on the planet in dealing with this very substantive issue. But the article that I mentioned by Jay Richard in the, Richards in the current edition of the Christian Research Journal's must-reading.